0: you will please stand at the reading of God's Word. We're going to concentrate in Zechariah 13 verses 1 through 9, but in order to give us a sense of what's going on in this book that we're just dropping into, uh, I'm going to pick up in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 7. Let's hear the words of the prophet, who the Spirit of Christ was was telling uh, that there would be a Savior to come who would suffer and then would enter into glory. Listen to what this prophet says in verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David, that's the house of the king, and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's the city of the king, may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, his people. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself. And their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself. And their wives by themselves. The family of the Shemites by itself. And their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left. Each by itself. And their wives by themselves. On that day. There shall be a fountain. Opened for the house of David. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem. To cleanse them. From sin and uncleanness. And on that day declares the Lord of hosts. I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. So that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets. And the spirit of uncleanness. And then in verse 7. Chapter 13. Awake, O sword. Against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord. Two thirds shall be cut off and perish. And one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire. And refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. It is strange for me as a preacher, just the way that I approach preaching to not have the the next passage just all laid out for me. And yesterday, as I discovered that I would be preaching, I'm not going just to the next passage I have because I plan to do that in in March. And so this morning I had an opportunity to just think through a question that maybe others more regularly ask themselves when they're preaching. And that's what should I say? Where should I go? What, what, what do the people need to hear? What do you need to hear? And I'm here to say, I'm not going to talk much about you this morning. I'm not going to talk much about your life this morning. But I am going to talk about the most important thing for your life this morning. I'm going to talk about the great story of history. And what God is doing. And the point of everything that He has ever done. And so we look at the prophets. And specifically this minor prophet called Zechariah. He, like the rest of his uh, fellow prophets, did the same thing toward the end of the Old Testament. They were looking back to how God's people had failed God time and time again. And they were looking forward, as you heard in the text, to a day when God himself will fix everything that we failed to do. You need to understand if you're going to appreciate the point of everything, because right now you and I are are distracted by by various things in our life, thinking that those are the real point of our day or our week. You need to remember the point of everything that God created in the beginning, everything that exists. And we are told that he created everything and everyone that includes you for the purpose of glorifying him. That's why you exist to bring honor and glory and attention to God who made you and to enjoy him in doing that to love him more than anything. And the Bible, the great story, tells us that it wasn't long after God did this work of creating that humans fell, that they chose sin, that they chose to go against God, that they refused to live out their purpose in life, did not want to live for His glory, and therefore they would not live. That is why everyone we know dies. Because we would not live for the purpose that we have breath which is to bring attention to God. And the good news that the Bible continues to unpack is that God still was committed to this plan. He will be glorified in all the world. All the nations will lift up His name. He will be enjoyed. But when all the world is an enemy of His, He chooses one people, the people of Israel set apart from all other people who did not know him, who chased after other gods, who were lost in their sin. And even Israel, God's people, did not serve him. They fell in the same way that Adam did. So when we come to Zechariah chapter 12, Zechariah is experiencing these visions as, as he looks back on how God's people have time and again, unfailingly and always fail him. And looking forward to the day when God will fix everything. As we heard in First Peter, the Spirit of Christ was giving in this passage a vision for the suffering of Christ and His subsequent glory. So this morning, I want you to get a sense of just how desperate Zechariah and the people of God were for, for God to come and fix everything so that we would never forget the glories of our Savior. I was reading a book recently uh, that said this line that stood out to me. and it, it said that when you have been living with a prophecy for so long, there is a shock at the revelation. Whenever it's finally revealed, there is a shock. And that is the shock I want to renew. I want God to renew in us this morning. Here's the sermon in a sentence. I want you from this passage to hope in the God who is the only hope for every sinner. Hope in the God who is the only hope for every sinner. All the hosts of God's people at the end of the Old Testament are coming together in a fountain and in a fire. Let's look first at the fire at the end of chapter 12 and beginning of chapter 13. A group of God's people have returned to the promised land of Israel. They were kicked out of the promised land because they would not obey God and did not love God. And now they've come back to rebuild His home in hopes God is going to come back and live with us. He's going to bring His glory back because we regret leaving Him. And they're asking this question, when, O oh God, will our sadness for being away from You End? Chapter 12, verse 1 says this is an oracle or a vision that concerns the people of God. Israel, this is the burden of God for Israel. Look in verse 3. All the nations are gathering against God's people for war. And then look in verse 4. Who's on the battlefield? The Lord has come in chapter 12, verse 4. He's the one who's going to fight For his people. And he's going to guarantee that they win. Look in verse 7. We just read this. I'm going to give salvation to you. I'm going to fight in this battle against your enemies. Verse 8. I will protect the inhabitants of my people. Verse 9. I will destroy all the nations that come against my people. This is the first answer in salvation. I've got to defeat your enemies if I'm going to come back and live with you. And you're going to be safe from all the danger that they brought. The question is, in verses 10 through 14, why is it that after all those promises, after God comes on the battlefield and defeats all the enemies, why is it that verses 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, the repeated word is mourning, wailing, weeping, why would the people of God who experienced that be weeping? So it's a scene right out of a movie where the whole world comes against this small people. And the shock is that the underdogs have the victory. They weren't supposed to survive the people of God when all of their enemies came against them. And so they're rejoicing together. They're hugging one another. They're drinking wine. All their enemies are gone forever. Forever. And in the midst of their rejoicing, they cannot ignore the reality that the only reason they could have won that kind of battle was there was one warrior who won it for them. It's just like that battle against that giant in Philistia. Goliath. When all of God's people, remember, are shaking in their boots. And they're not willing to fight against Goliath. But then one comes out. David, the king, who beheaded the giant. And then all of a sudden the rest get up and they celebrate and they pursue the rest of the enemy to victory. It's that kind of battle that we're looking at in Zechariah 12. And so all their thanks for the win goes to the David or the king of their battle. And as they're congratulating themselves, as they turn to thank their champion, they're looking through the crowd, assuming that he will be there and embracing another soldier or receiving the thanks of the women and the children. But they cannot find the one who fought for them. Until verse 10 of chapter 12. 12. They find him. Do you see him? And he's not jumping for joy. He's not even standing His body is among the dead. And the worst part is they see a sword coming out of his body. And it came from the people of Israel. The commander of the armies of God's people, the champion who made the little people of God victorious, has been killed by his own Soldiers. It'd be understandable for there to be all kinds of emotions that the soldiers would feel at that moment. They may be disappointed, but they also know, look, this is this is war. Friendly fire is just part of war. Uh, our soldiers, uh, even our greatest champion, he would have he, he would have been happy to die on behalf of his people. So it's sad that that he's dead, but. But this is a fitting. Result. There are all kinds of ways the soldiers that day could have been responding to this situation, that their champion has accidentally been killed, defending his own people, destroying all their enemies. But there is one reaction that is actually impossible for them to have, according to the text, if you read it carefully in verse 10. There is something the one who was pierced ends up Being able still to do in order to bring about the response that is appropriate in verse 10. Somehow the pierced one who has been killed is able to pour out the spirit of grace that leads to them pleading for mercy. Let us look for a moment at the piercing and then the pouring. The piercing and then the pouring. I want you to consider what God is saying about the salvation that His people need, that you and I need. He says it requires a piercing and it requires a pouring. That language of piercing comes up again in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, that, that famous prophecy of what would happen to Jesus Christ. He was despised. He was rejected by men. Imagine the King of God's people coming to His people. And leading them to victory. And this is what it says about him. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Why? Because he came to bear our griefs. And carry our sorrows. But he was struck by God. He was, here's the word. Pierced. For our transgressions. He was, here's another word, crushed for our iniquities. And on him was the chastisement that was needed if we were going to have peace. The piercing that is referenced in chapter 12, verse 10 is a piercing that would cleanse us of iniquity, of sins. The servant of Israel was rejected by His people. God in the flesh is pierced by God for His own people's sins on a cross. He has no sins to be killed for. And so He's doing it in the place of His people. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, do you remember how they... They thought that they would have to break his legs to make him die faster because night was coming. And John chapter 19 says that they realized that he was already dead and so they didn't have to break his legs. And that was to fulfill when they pierced his side with a spear. They pierced his side. And blood and water come out, proving that he's already dead. That was to fulfill. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Zechariah 13. The cross was absolutely necessary for this piercing of Zechariah 13 to occur. That means that the cross of Jesus Christ is the day of the Lord, where the Lord defeated his people's enemies. For them, and when God Himself, the firstborn Son, died for our sins and saved us from His anger. If we would live with God forever, He had to be killed for us because we are so unclean. So the piercing leads to a pouring, and that pouring leads to a fountain. Why would they be mourning? It says in 12, 10 through 14. Why is there? That's the only thing that, that everyone is doing. The house of the king. Look, the house of David, the house of Levi, the house of the, the priests, But then and everyone else who survived every family and not just the head of the house. They want to make sure that we all know it's the wives in the house and everyone in the house. Everyone of the people of God are only doing this one thing. They are mourning. How is it that they start to mourn? Why is that their response when the one who they, who saved them was pierced? It's because he's still able, he is raised from the dead to pour out a spirit, a gracious spirit, a gift that they don't deserve so that they might plead for mercy because they are mourning the one they pierced. Chapter 13, verse 1. This day that God's people somehow kill God is the same day that God opens a fountain that will cleanse them from all of their sin and uncleanness. That is a fountain then of forgiveness for those who know they're the ones who pierced For those who can come to the point of mourning, it was my fault that He died. For those people, there is a fountain of forgiveness that is opened in the most violent way. That's how the blood gets there to forgive because they pierced Him. Mourning and pleas for mercy leads to the mercy of cleansing. Revelation chapter 1 says this, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, they will see him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Those who mourn for piercing are cleansed for killing. This is far more important than anything I could tell you to do specifically this Tuesday, Thursday. Any kind of vision I can give you for what 2021 should look like. Those who mourn. And take responsibility. For the fact that God had to come in the flesh. And that even though he is perfect and deserving of our glory and our worship. That we pierced him. He died for us. And everyone who mourns for the piercing will be cleansed for the killing. That is the people who make up the people of God. See, every one of them is mourning. And every one of them come out of the fountain. From all the tribes of the earth. This is not just the people of Israel. This one that God exalts becomes the savior of people from all over the world. I remember when I, 16 years ago now, I think, was watching in the theaters the movie The Passion for the Christ. And I was not the only one in the theater. As we're watching this representation of Jesus being tortured and then nailed to a cross, I remember I was not the only one in the theater who was wailing aloud weeping when I'm watching his suffering for sinners because I knew this is what he did for me. And whatever I'm seeing on the big screen, it would have been far more real and far worse. This is what he did for sinners. And this was done to him by sinners. This is what he did for me. And this was done to him by me. And the only appropriate response is mourning. The greatest concern that we should have in our life is not who's going to lead our country. And why can't we find someone who has the character that we're looking for? Someone who is trustworthy. The, The greatest concern in your life right now is not when you get to have the vaccine. Or whether your children are going to turn out okay, Or whether your loved ones are going to be happy. God is doing for them what what. He's correcting something that is coming for you and coming for me. And that is to think that all of our problems are outside of us. And they think and they're rejoicing that the, the human enemies of theirs, the people who hurt them were defeated by God. That's what they're rejoicing over. And he says, you've got to mourn. Because if you're really going to be saved, if you're going to actually enjoy salvation and be with me, you've got to mourn because I died to make this happen. And it is your fault that I've died. We need to be cleansed from sin. That's what chapter 13, verse 1 says. That the piercing opens up a fountain of blood that we need if we're going to be cleansed by sin. I love what John Piper says when he's defining sin. What is sin? It is the glory of God, not honor. That's sin. It is the holiness of God, not reverenced That's sin. It's not just these little little lies we tell. These little ways we hurt people. It is mainly about God. Sin is the greatness of God, not admired. It's the power of God, not praised. It is the truth of God, not sought. It is the wisdom of God, not esteemed. It is the beauty of God, not treasured. It is the goodness of God, not savored. It is the faithfulness of God, not trusted. It is the commandments of God, not obeyed. It is the justice of God, not respected. It is the wrath of God, not feared. It is the grace of God, not cherished. It is the presence of God, not prized. And it is the person of God, not loved. That is sin. And there is a shower for sinners in the house of David. The piercing occurs in the midst of God saving his people from their enemies. And then he causes them to mourn because it's their fault. And then the mourning lends to their cleansing. The blood that the traitors drew in murder, by grace it says, that blood is the very blood that cleanses them of the guilt of their betrayal. And every betrayal. You need to know if you would be saved and living the purpose for your breath. That the first step is to wail. For your guilt. Nothing else could save a wretched sinner like you or me. And then it's to rejoice for the blood that cleanses us. When Jesus returns, you know what's going to happen to God's people. All the tribes of the earth, the people who actually love Him, what they're going to do is mourn for the one we pierce. We will wail on account of Him, even so, Lord Jesus, come. We know we're guilty and that's why He died, but we also know that His blood cleansed us of all guilt, so come, Lord Jesus. We're not afraid to be confronted with our guilt because we know what you did with that blood. Zechariah is not yet done with envisioning our salvation. And so he talks to us about a fountain that cleanses us of guilt, but he's not done because there's a fire that cleanses us of distrust. This is really important. Because a lot more people can get down with the fountain than the fire. Hope in the God who is the only hope for every sinner. Look at the fire. Look at the fire. Zechariah continues the Cleansing theme in in verses 2 through 9. Look in verse 2. He's cleansing. It's still the same theme. He says, I'm going to cut off the names. I'm going to remove. There, there's something unclean about the land of my presence. That I cannot come and be with you. And you cannot be my people, like he says in verse 9, until I do a work. And that is to cut off all the names of all the false gods that fill the land. There will be no other God who shares the space with the true God. There will be no other God that gets the affection of God's people. And so he says in verse two, I will remove the prophets. That is the false prophets, the lying prophets we see in verses three through five. The people who are lying when they say this is what God wants. I'm going to remove all of them and I'm going to remove all the rest of your uncleanness. That's what salvation requires. I want you to notice three things from verses 7 through 9. So that you might know how God saves. Number one, look at the shepherd in verse 7. Look at the shepherd in verse 7. What happens to the shepherd? Well, first of all, we know that he's standing right next to the Lord. He is in the presence of the Lord. That means he's clean enough to be there. He is a righteous shepherd and he is struck By the sword of God. And I want you to notice in verse 7 what happens to the sheep whenever the shepherd is struck. And, And Jesus, you should know, right when he went to the cross, he says the shepherd's about to be struck and the sheep will be scattered. In the death of Jesus, this was accomplished and the sheep are scattered away from him. They're they're thrown into the wilderness. They don't have their leader. They can't see him. He says, I'm going to expose my little ones to danger by the hand of God himself. Now, there are some pulpits where you will hear a lot about the fountain and you'll hear nothing about the fire. But God says it. I want you to hear what God says about the day of his salvation in verse 8. I want you to look at the fractions. How the scattered sheep are a portion. Two-thirds of the people who claim that they wanted the fountain of blood and forgiveness, two-thirds of those people after that point will B, and here we have the same language we saw in verse 2 about idols and about false prophets, they will be cut off. Two-thirds, according to this, of the people who claim to want salvation, who say they want the blood, two-thirds of those people will be cut off and treated as enemies. They will perish. Y'all listening? Verse 8 One third will survive. And what does he do to that third? Verse 9. A fountain cleanses and a fire refines. Like testing gold. He's going to burn out the impurities in their hearts. What is refined out of the real people of God is exactly what was not refined out of the two thirds who were cut off. The two-thirds that are cut off are those who have to go when the idols have to go. Who won't be there when the false gods are removed out of the land of God. In other words, what is not removed from them is they continue to look to other gods. They remember other names. Look in verse 9 explicitly what he says. I put the third into the fire and I refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested they will call upon my name and I will answer them I will say they are the ones who are my people and they will say the Lord is my God It's after the fire It's through the fire It's not everyone who claims God initially. It's not everyone who names the name of Jesus initially. It is the third who, after claiming the Lord, are put in a fire. And though the fire would remove all their impurities and make them go through much pain, it is only one name that they remember. And it is not their idols. And they call out to Him. He is my God. And those people... God says, Damn. You heard it from 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Peter in the New Testament says the same things about anyone who asks to be cleansed in the fountain. Every one of them is put in a refining fire. Do you see how this, this chapter is about The things that we've been talking about in Zechariah. Look in first Peter chapter one and verse one. He's writing to the chosen who have been driven away from God, the exiles, the ones who've been dispersed. They are sheep who've been scattered. Look in verse eight. The, the shepherd has been struck and the sheep have been scattered. They cannot see him. You don't see him because you're scattered from him. But look, especially. Back at verse six. When God promises this great salvation, that this hope that we have that is alive because Jesus is alive from the dead, this hope that we have in an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading is being kept for us in heaven Verse six says, in this you rejoice. Though now, this is what your experience is. You have been grieved by various trials. Here's the language of Zechariah 13 verse nine. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, the gold that is tested, it is more, your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire And I have no need to talk to you, encourage you. If you will just say you want the fountain. And they will not help you at all when the fire comes. This is what will help you when the fire comes. Because it will come to everyone who comes under the fountain and the cleansing blood. Who says they want that. What you should expect is a fiery trial. You should expect a life filled with hardship. Because God is using the fire for something. He says there in verse 7, He's going to test whether your faith is genuine. I want you to receive the outcome of your faith. The salvation that is ready to be revealed. Not just to feel saved in a moment. I want you to receive the outcome of faith. The salvation of your souls. So I'm concerned... When the fire comes on our lives and I don't see you calling out. The Lord has a goal for his people and you got to get with the goal of all history. He is going to purify the world of idols. He's going to drive out all the false teaching. He's going to drive out all the other names of other gods that we reach for when we're sinning that we are believing can give us comfort. And He pursues that goal with fire so that those who profess faith in verse 6 will actually get what they're professing to want. Salvation in the end. And we've heard in Zechariah, and you should hear it in 1 Peter, not all who profess, and it seems that the, the fractions, of the minority of people who profess Not all of them will receive the outcome. They will not get salvation. They will be proven not genuine. Not really loving the Lord. The goal of the Lord is to be recognized as the only God. That's what's the problem with this world. It's not the pain of loss in this life. Jesus is not most interested in us having ease of life. Jesus is most interested in us having a lasting inheritance. And what that will mean is a life of fire. The cleansing fountain leads to a purifying fire that drives out every other name that we're still tempted to reach for, that we might call out to when we're uncomfortable. He said, I'm going to cut off all the names of the false idols so that their names are remembered no more. And the ones who call on my name in the fire, they are my people. Genuine faith, real salvation, according to the prophets hundreds of years ago, according to the apostle hundreds of years ago, is determined by this. Who do you call when the fires rage? Varied, grievous fires. Your fire, different from mine. Your trials, different from theirs. But fire, hardship, and whenever we're in trouble, the habit of our heart that God would purify out of us, that requires fire to purify out of us, The habit of our heart is to turn to the little black book of our comforters. When we're lonely, when we're hungry, when we're sad, when we're suffering, we dial up the number of another name. We try to escape our sadness with entertainment. We try to numb ourselves with social media. We try to distract ourselves with pleasures or food or addiction or buying things. Those idols who in the past, before salvation, eased our stress, reassured us that we are okay, gave us hope for the future. Beloved Christians, do not treat our burns with the aloes of this world. We will not look to the cares of this world. We will not look to the deceitfulness of riches and we will not look to the desire for other things. We will look to the Lord, our God. That's the testimony that He is going to work out in everyone who professes. He will have a people who say, the Lord is my God. And they have said that after He led them into danger. Not because He's unloving. Not because He's unloving. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening beloved. This is not strange for the beloved to experience a fire trial. It is common and part of the plan. It is because he loves us too much to lose us. It is because he wants us to receive the outcome and not just comfort momentarily. It is only those who are cured of calling others who actually get Him. So pain and loss and waiting are what we need to train us to trust Him and long for Him that we might receive Him. He is... Taking away from us all of the other comforts. And then he's saying, do you still want me? That's why he goes on from talking about the fire to verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love. him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Even though my shepherd, I can't see. He loves me. He. Who sent this pain. To purge me. Is the one. Who I pierced. That's what we know. And it it, it was his joy. The joy of purifying me. Purifying me. With this pain. So that. What is removed from me is what would keep me from Him. He was pierced by us, church. And He was pierced for us, church. We are never going to experience for Him what He did for us. Even though I can't see Him, this is why we love Him. And God will say at the end, those are the ones who are me. Father in heaven, we ask that you would make us a people who survive the fire. Who don't just say we want the fountain, but survive the fire. So that our faith and hope are in God. It is your desire for your people to have a hope that lives because our Savior lives. It is your desire for your people that though we go through the fire, we still love you. And you are still worth it to us. That that will happen for everyone who Christ died to save. It will happen. And we pray that we are among them. God, we pray that you would burden our hearts for those who don't seem to be surviving the fire. God, would you remove from them and from all of us every name in our memory, but your own. And may we lean on you so that we may have you in heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name.